you recall that, that last week we spoke about, uh, or I spoke about, uh, the problem of evil and how we should think about that biblically. And I touched on an issue in that message, uh, particularly with when dealing with Job's example of anger at God. And I made a, a comment that it's always wrong to be angry at God. And uh, interestingly, before that message, and of course we hadn't planned this out, this happened in the providence of God, uh, a letter was read from our beloved Pastor George uh, that he had written from the hospital. Uh, and in that, he seemed to make a point of the, of the fact that he was not angry at God for any of the trials he was going through uh, that are all associated with his, his stage four cancer. And I, I was reminded of, of a passage in Scripture in 1 Peter 5 where Peter says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being as lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when Christ, the chief shepherd, appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And it dawned on me that George was being such a good example to us of not being angry at God in his letter, of trusting the Lord completely, of receiving from God's providential loving hand all that came his way uh, with joy and faith and without anger. Uh, what a good example he's been to all of us and, and also his wife, Lena. And so as Ken and I thought about this and talked about it, even as we left church last week, I thought, well, then maybe what I should do this coming week today is to talk about why it's wrong to be angry at God. It seems to be a theme. Uh, that the Lord has brought out. <laughs> uh, and so maybe it's good that we focus on it a little bit more. And so that's what I intend to do today. Uh, the, the title of this message is Anger at God is Never Right. Or you could say it's always a sin to be angry at God, <laughs> however you want to put it. Let's take a moment to pray and then I'll try to clearly bring this out. Holy Father, it's, it's my uh, privilege to be able to serve as, as a fellow elder with George and Brent and Ben here at Emmanuel Baptist Church and to serve uh, a, such a wonderful congregation uh, that we have here who love you, um, who want to follow you. I, I've been uh, sometimes amazed, even though I shouldn't be, that whenever, whenever we want something or think something should happen here at Emmanuel or some change should be made, all we have to do is show them it's in the Bible and they're on board. You don't have to convince them. All you have to do is show them in the Word this is a good thing and they're all on board. They just follow your Word. Uh, they don't follow us. They follow you. 
they follow your word. And they make, they make it easy for us. And I'm just so grateful for that. And uh, we know that George is going to receive his crown of glory, which does not fade away sooner than many of us. And we, we're just thankful for his example, for the way you've worked in his life, and for the message that he, that he wrote to us last week, reminding us that we're supposed to trust you. We, we can trust you in every situation and that we can encounter any difficulty with joy and with faith. And that it's always wrong to be angry at you. That's the wrong response. And so we want to uh, look into the scripture as to why that is so today. And, and it's our prayer that you would fill us with your spirit and with understanding as we seek to, to deal with this sometimes controversial issue Help me to speak clearly, I pray, and to, to make clear what the Scripture says. Because, uh, as always, this congregation wants to know what the Scripture says. So help me to that end, I pray, in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, many of you have probably heard over the years that it's not really wrong to be angry at at God. In fact, there are some supposed Christian counselors that even encourage, encourage people to be angry at God. I'm going to read to you the, some advice that comes from an article entitled, I know it, it might be hard to believe that this is the title of the article, Go Ahead, Be Angry at God, with an exclamation point. Go ahead, be angry at God. And it's written by a liberal writer named R. Adam DeBaugh. Here's what he says. Too often I hear people talk guiltily about feeling anger toward God. More often than not, we get angry at God over things over which we have no control. If we don't control it, God must. Someone has to be in control. It may be a failed relationship or the death of a loved one or our cumulative grief over the ongoing HIV AIDS crisis or financial worries or any number of things about which we feel we have no control. So we are angry. And since no one else seems to be available to be angry at, we get angry at God. And we feel guilty. We feel we shouldn't get angry at God. We worry about God's feelings uh, being hurt. Worse yet, God will return our anger, and we all know how much better at being angry God could be. Nonsense. I say, go ahead, be angry at God with the exclamation point once again. Now, later in the same article, uh, DeBaugh goes on to assert again, so go ahead, be angry at God. God can take it. There won't be any, any retribution from God, and you might be able to do some clear and constructive thinking about what made you angry after venting your emotions. Now, as I've considered this issue in the light of Scripture, I, I must say that I couldn't disagree more with the advice given by this man. Um, first, I strongly question whether simply venting our anger is really ever helpful. Um, the words of the Apostle James, I think, ought to come to mind pretty quickly here when he says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, meaning anger, for the wrath of man does not produce 
the righteousness of God. That's in James 1, 19 and 20. So first of all, I, I, I think the idea of venting your anger as constructive might be a questionable one, uh, to say the least. It's not that we shouldn't talk about our anger, but venting it, letting it come out in, in, is... Anger is like a tiger uh, in a cage, and if you unlock that cage and open it, that tiger will do a lot of damage. Uh, and so James rightly warns us about our anger. So that's that's the first part. But secondly, I, I disagree with Duvall completely that it is ever all right to be angry at God because anger toward a person typically assumes that a person has wronged you in some way. Or else, why would you be angry? Uh, consider the following definitions of anger. According to WordWeb, anger is, quote, belligerence aroused by a real or supposed wrong. Belligerence aroused by a real or supposed wrong. That's the common definition of anger that you're going to find. According to dictionary.com, uh, anger is, quote, a strong feeling of displeasure and belligerence aroused by a wrong, wrath or ire. Um, Merriam-Webster Dictionary, which has tended to change a lot of its definitions in recent years about some pretty important things, has kind of softened this a little bit. Uh, Merriam-Webster says anger is, quote, a strong feeling of displeasure and usually of antagonism. Now, even supposing that softer definition given by Merriam-Webster, which describes anger as a strong feeling of displeasure, one must wonder how a person could ever justly feel such displeasure toward God unless he assumes that God has done something worthy of such displeasure and thus something that we would call wrong. At the very least, you're going to assume that if God deserves your displeasure, you have a good reason to be displeased with him. And we, none of us think it's right to be displeased for no good reason. We think we're displeased about something we think is wrong. So even that softer definition doesn't get around the issue here. Yeah, it's belligerence aroused by real or supposed wrong. That's what it is. I think John Piper hits the nail on the head when he writes the following. Uh, it's in an article in which he asked the question, is it ever right to be angry at God? And I'm glad he came to the right answer. But uh, he writes, what is anger? The common definition is an intense emotional state induced by displeasure. It's another version of Merriam-Webster he's citing. But there is an ambiguity in this definition. You can be displeased by a thing or, or by a person. Anger at a thing does not contain indignation at a choice or an act. We simply don't like the effect of the thing, uh, the broken clutch or the grain of sand that just blew in our eye or rain on our picnic. But when we get angry at a person, we are displeased with a choice they made and an act they performed. Pardon me. Anger at a person, he writes, always implies strong disapproval. If you are angry at me, you think I have done something I should not have done. This is why being angry at God is never right. It is wrong, always wrong, to dis disapprove of God for what he does and permits. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Genesis 
It is arrogant, he writes, for finite, sinful creatures to disapprove of God for what he does and permits. We may weep over the pain. We may be angry at sin and Satan. But God does only what is right. Remember, we focused on that last week. Yes, O Lord, the Almighty, true and righteous, are your judgments, Revelation 16, 7. Now, I agree with John's reasoning, and I've often offered essentially the same response myself. God cannot sin. He can do no wrong. And therefore, there can never be any reason for anger towards him. It's an impossibility. And so, I want to now look at some of the uh, scriptures that show us the holiness of God and why it is to assume he could do something wrong. And then we'll look at several examples that are often used by, I think, well-meaning, but misguided, Christian counselors even, by which they try to say that anger at God is all right. We'll look at three such examples in scripture, the, the main ones I see used. But first of all, let's look at some of the biblical teaching about God's holiness that precludes any reason ever to be angry at him, right? Uh, to the scriptures cited by John Piper in what I read from him regarding the justice and righteousness of God, we could add many others. Consider, uh, for example, the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. I'm going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah writes that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So he encountered uh, in this imagery, in a powerful way, the holiness of God. And uh, he wasn't in that moment thinking, there's some things I'm mad at God about here. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, he was saying, woe is me. You see, the holiness of God always exposes our sin, just as it did the sin of Isaiah. In fact, that God is holy means both that he does not sin and that he is separated from sin. Um, Wayne Grudem has offered a good definition of the holiness of God in, in his systematic theology text where he writes, God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. This definition contains both a relational quality, separation from, and a moral quality. The separation is from sin or evil, and the devotion is to the good of God's own honor or glory. I think that's a pretty good definition of what it means that God is holy. The holiness of God also provides the basis for his commands for us to be holy. Uh, consider in, uh, in this regard the admonition of the Apostle Peter, who cites the book of Leviticus on this point in 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16. It's 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16. When he writes to believers, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, 
and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And there he's citing Leviticus 11. It is because God is holy, and thus also desires that we be holy, that he also disciplines us as his children. And this point is made quite clearly by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12. I'll be reading there in Hebrews 12 from beginning of verse 5 and read verses 5 through 14. Hebrews 12, verse 5 says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. Remember, he's dealing, when he's writing to the Hebrews, of people who are growing weary and well-doing, as Paul would put it to the Thessalonians. He says, we shouldn't become weary and well-doing, but they were. And some of them were wondering if they'd made the right choice to leave Judaism and follow Christ. So things were serious here. Um, And uh, so he's trying to remind them of some important things. And he says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to his sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Here he's citing Proverbs. Nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. They were concerned... uh, that they were going through so many hardships and and the author of Hebrews is saying, well, wait a minute, that's just a sign that God loves you and that you're his sons and, and he accepts you as his sons and therefore disciplines you. You should be worried if you weren't being disciplined, is the idea. In other words, they're looking at what's happening to them through the wrong lens. People like that are the ones that get tempted to be angry at God, frankly. And so we need the right lens. One of those lenses is that God disciplines those whom he loves um, because he is holy and he desires that we share in his holiness. As the author of Hebrews goes on to say, furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. There's an implication here that maybe they're not respecting their heavenly father like they should because they're not seeing things the way they ought to, right? Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit. The implication here is earthly fathers can get it wrong. Our heavenly father never does, and it's always for our profit. And what's that profit? That, he says, we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, he writes, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. He's saying, I get it. It hurts. Right? (laughs) Uh, Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Uh, Pastor George's letter had some of that peaceable fruit just shining forth from it, didn't it? Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
so his big point here is if you want what God wants for you, which is that you be holy as he is holy, then you will not despise the chastening that he brings into your life. I would add, you won't get angry at him and disrespect him either. You will be grateful that he loves you so much that he's willing to discipline you so that you could be more like him. Because there's nothing better for you than to be more like him. He's your heavenly father and he desires there be a family resemblance in his children. And this is one of the ways that he brings it out. So we're to be holy because our heavenly father is holy. And this has to be our perspective if we're ever going to get things right here in the way we view this issue of whether or not we should be angry at God. In fact, God is so holy he cannot even be tempted to sin. It's not just that he doesn't sin. He can't even be tempted to sin. In James 1.13, James 1.13, our departed brother James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Find me a person who's angry at God, and I'll, find you, I'll show you a person who's forgotten what James has said here. So it's again clear from Scripture that God can do no wrong, that he is himself the very standard of righteousness, of holiness for us. It is also clear, therefore, that any response to his decisions or actions that assumes that he has done wrong is itself wrong. Indeed, given such evidence from Scripture that God can do no wrong, the thought that a person could ever justly be angry at God immediately appears ridiculous, I would argue. Not to mention blasphemous. Just outright blasphemous. Think of the arrogance it takes to accuse God of sin. Now, I don't think the person who's angry at God stops to think that's, that that's what he or she is doing, which is why we need to let them know that. Because whether it's uh, conscious sin or not, it's still sin. Whether it's consciously blaspheming God or not, it's still blasphemy, in my opinion. And I think I've made that point pretty clearly from the text of Scripture. So we've looked at some of these passages which indicate God's holiness and, and which preclude any reason for ever justly being angry at him. Now I want to look at three examples of people who were angry at God in Scripture. Uh, we'll look at Job and Jonah and Jeremiah. I don't know why they all begin with J, but it just worked out that way. Now, we won't spend a lot of time on Job because we spent a lot of time on Job last week, but we do need to rehearse a few of those points. And actually... Pastor George in his letter mentioned Job as well. As, as, as uh, when Job did rightly and he worshiped God and didn't accuse God of any wrong, that's the example George was putting forth for us of, of, uh, that he was following. That was the right example of Job to follow, right? And since we looked at some detail at that again when we looked at the problem of evil, we'll, we'll just highlight a few passages here. <clears throat> We have to remember again how God had granted Satan permission to attack Job, of how Job's whole family was killed, except for his wife, who uh, ended up being kind of a thorn in his side because she kind of encouraged him to curse God and die, which was what Satan wanted, not what God wanted. So in her misery, she sinned too, sadly. Um, 
we, we saw how he lost all his possessions and even his health. He had a miserable skin disease that just made him absolutely miserable. And as the trial of his faith continued and things went from bad to worse, uh, Job began to be angry at God, as we saw last week. And so we'll just highlight one of those passages that indicate that here. And that's Job 19, verses 6 and 7. Job 19, 6 and 7. Only a person angry at God would say this. And if you've ever read Job, you can't miss that he got angry at God. It's like a major theme of the book. Um, he says, know then that God has wronged me. Now that's the way the New King James translates it, and I think that's correct. And has surrounded me with his net. If I cry out concerning wrong, I'm not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. So not only has God wronged me, he won't listen to me when I cry out to him about it. So that's a way of saying he's wronged me, and then he wronged me again. That's his view. Now, after initially refusing, as we saw last week, either to curse God or to accuse him of any wrong, Job eventually succumbed to the pressure of his circumstances, as many of us may have done in the past. And when we, when we may have become angry at God. And the resulting despair uh, had led him to actually accuse God of wronging him. And uh, as I said, his anger toward God is easy to detect in his complaints. And the reason for his anger is clear enough as well. He believed God had wronged him by treating him unfairly. And such anger at God has been the temptation of many a depressed and sorrowful soul over the years. Thankfully, as we saw last week, and, and Job never did curse God and, or turn away from him, even though he got angry at him. No matter how you know, no matter how bitter and angry he became, he never turned away from God. He never cursed him. You know, those of us uh, who are married or have children or have parents, right, or have been in any close relationship, know you can be angry at someone and still not reject them and your relationship with them, right? Well, that's what happened to Job in his relationship with with God. Only we, we are often justly angry at the people that we have relationship with, and Job was not. He was sinfully angry. By definition, to be angry at God is sinful, as we've seen. Now, later in the book, as we saw last week, and, and we'll look at again here, we find that Job regretted ever having spoke, spoken such rash and angry words about God um, because God confronted Job. Remember, we saw that in Job 40 last week, and we'll just, I'll, I'll read these and to bring this point out again. Uh, in Job 40, uh, verses 1 through 5, we're told that the Lord answered Job and said, shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Now note, now note here, anyone who's ever been angry at God assumes that they can correct him. They're right and God's wrong and I, and I have a reason to be angry at him is their assumption. Whether they thought it through or not, that's what's going on. So Job may not have thought this through clearly. He was not thinking clearly, clearly. Right? He was not thinking as he ought to have thought. So God makes sure that he understands what's at issue here when he, when he says, shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I'm vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. 
I get it, God, I was wrong. Later in Job 42, we find the same kind of response. In verses 1 through 6, Job 42, 1 through 6, says that Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself. Sounds like uh, what happened to Isaiah, right? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. <laughs> Get the same thing, essentially, from Job. Therefore, I pour myself and repent in dust and ashes. It seems clear to me, at least, that Job recognized that he had been wrong about God and that he was wrong to say the things about God that he had said. He recognized that his attitude had been sinful. And he offered God his most sincere confession and repentance. And so I have to say then that I continue to be dumbfounded at the way that many cite the case of Job as evidence that it's all right to be angry at God. I think, have you actually read the book? The whole point is that he sinned in being angry at God and he needed to repent of it. It's hard to imagine how someone could read a book and so badly misunderstand it. But uh, that's what happens when people uh, go to a book deciding they're going to find what they want to find before they even start. <laughs> and that's what they do when they read the book of Job and see, see, it's okay to be angry at God. Well, if Job were here, he would say, no, it isn't. <laughs> and let me tell you, I know it because I learned it the hard way. That's what he would tell you. He would vehemently disagree were he here. And thankfully, we have his words recorded of disagreement with that notion. He said, I poor myself for having been angry at God. In context, that's what he was pouring himself for. And I would suspect, instead of being angry at God, if Job were here, he'd be angry at the people who say it's okay to be angry at God. That's who he'd be angry at. So that's the example of Job. So much for that one, indicating it's all right to be angry at God. The next example is Jonah. I'm sure most of us are familiar with the story of Jonah. We know that God commanded Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh and that Jonah disobeyed God until eventually God brought him around and Jonah did as what, he, what he was ordered. Remember, he had to be uh, fish food for a little while <laughs> uh, before he learned his lesson and decided he was going to obey God. He was angry, frankly at the Ninevites and angry that God would tell him to go preach repentance to them. He didn't want the Ninevites to repent. He wanted them to be judged. Uh, they were horrific people, the Assyrians. That's what the Ninevites were. They were maybe some of the most uh, bloodthirsty, cruel people ever to have existed on the earth, actually. Uh, you talk about atrocities. Uh, there, are, there are very few atrocities since that time that can uh, be considered worse than things the Assyrians did. This is, why, this is why Jonah, he wanted them to be judged. And so he kind of didn't want to do what God said. 
Because he had this inkling that God was telling him to go there and preach repentance so that they could repent. And he didn't want that to happen. This, this is clear if you read the book. But we're going to read Job 4, beginning in verse 1, and, and see what's going on. Uh, he eventually did as he was ordered. He preached to the Ninevites. Um, and when, after he preached to them, what he'd feared came to pass. They repented and God showed them mercy. That's the one thing he didn't want to happen. Can you imagine a prophet of God not wanting that to happen? Uh, well, again, you have to know the Assyrians to see why he would succumb to such a temptation. And it angered Jonah, and, and this is what we see in the text beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. But it, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. What it displeased them was the repentance of the Ninevites and God's subsequent mercy to them in the context. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, oh, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, I knew before you ever sent me, the reason I tried to run away and not go to Nineveh is I knew you were going to save these people because you're so gracious. And now I'd rather be dead than those people be show mercy. That's, that's what he's saying. Because he's angry. He wanted vengeance. Who does he think he is determining who should have vengeance or mercy? Only God can determine that. You see the arrogance here of being angry at God? Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. Now, the obvious question is, no, it's not right for you to be angry. Job should, or Jonah, rather, should have said, of course not, I'm sorry, right? But he's going to need an object lesson before he gets the point, apparently. So he went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat on, under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So he's still showing mercy to Jonah, the angry prophet, right? So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. If you're in a hot desert place and you finally get some shade, apparently miraculous shade here that he had to know came from God, uh, that's something to be grateful for. But as the morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm and so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Uh, you should be hearing uh, the author of Hebrews talking about disciplining, God disciplining those whom he loves. That's what's going on here, right? Uh, he grew faint and then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? First, he was asking, is it right for you to be angry, right, that I, that I was gracious to the Ninevites? Now, he's asking, is it right for you to be angry about this plant? And then Jonah said, it's hard to believe that he said this, but he did. It is right for me to be angry, even to death. <laughs> this is a stubborn guy, Jonah. Uh, but the word said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. 
And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? I mean, God cares about all of his creatures. So yes, Jonah was angry at God. The people that say, he's an example of being angry at God. They're right. He was angry at God. The text makes it very clear, and it makes it very clear why he was angry at God. But he was also wrong to be angry at God. And that's also clear from the text. I think God made it clear to Jonah, didn't he, that it was wrong. So, so much for that example of it's all right to be angry with the God. Um, and by the way, often people who are angry at God are as, every bit as miserable as Jonah was. But it's self-inflicted misery. All the misery Jonah went through was self-inflicted here because he was angry at God, almost from the start. I've not met a happy person who's angry at God, have you? Here's the, another example that surprises some people. I was surprised to see it mentioned. I hadn't read the text this way before, and this is from Jeremiah. Now, the story of, of Jeremiah, as you recall, is filled with sorrow and difficulty. Uh, of all the prophets, he might have suffered the most next to our Lord Jesus as a prophet. Um, because the people of Israel constantly refused to hear the word of the Lord that he brought to them, and they often persecuted him as well. But the very ministry to which he was called also caused him uh, to be isolated from those around him, and, and he himself brought this up in Jeremiah 15. We're begin, going to be looking at uh, Jeremiah 15, beginning in verse 17. Jeremiah 15, 17. Jeremiah says, in Jeremiah 15, 17, I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand. His work as a prophet of God had isolated him from the people around him because he couldn't take part in their mockery. And, and, so forth. So he, and he says, I sat alone because of your hand, for you have filled me with indignation. Indignation is anger aroused by perceived injustice, right? Usually you think of indignation as just anger. Now, it seems as though here, he said, the reason I couldn't hang out with them is, as your servant, you fill me with indignation at what they're doing. I'm so angry at what they're doing, I don't want to be a part of it. Well, that's just and righteous anger, perhaps, right? Um, but notice that the anger Jeremiah had felt uh, uh, did appear to be toward the sins against which he'd been preaching, but something happens in what he says after this that leads you to see that even good anger turned bad. Um, even righteous anger can turn sour and become sinful, especially, especially if it turns into anger toward God. As apparently happened in this case, given what Jeremiah goes on to say in verse 18. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream and waters that fail? Whoa. What's happening here? He's accusing God of being unfaithful, unreliable. Almost of tricking him. 
Uh, as J.A. Thompson has observed, quote, it seemed to the prophet that his pain was unending, his wound desperate and incurable. God seemed to be like a deceitful brook. That's another way of translating unreliable stream. That is a stream that goes dry in summer and cannot be depended on for water. Time was when Jeremiah thought of Yahweh as, quote, a fountain of living water. That was in chapter 2, verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. But, as J.A. Thompson goes on to say, now he's, it, he seems like waters that have failed. So in the context of the book here, what's he saying to God? You put me in this position where I was angry at those around me and isolated from them, and now I'm suffering all the time because of what you did. And I counted on you, and you've let me down. That's what he's saying. Wow. So just like Job had done, it, it would appear to me that Jeremiah had begun to question the fairness and reliability of God in the midst of his trials, even to the point of accusing God of wronging him, of tricking him. The Jeremiah's reaction appeared to stem from sinful anger is reinforced by God's response to him in the following verse. If, if what he said in verse 18 wasn't wrong, why does God say what he says next? In verse 19, Therefore thus says the Lord, if you return, that's the word shuv, it, it means turn back or repent. It's the word for repentance commonly in the Old Testament. If you return or repent, then I will bring you back. You shall stand before me. If you take out the precious from the vial, you shall be as my mouth. Let them, those people you're isolated from, return to you, using shuv again as a play on words, but you must not return to them. Now what's he saying here? You've separated yourself from them, but you're starting to be like them. What you just said about me was the kind of thing they would say. You need to repent. Then you can be my mouthpiece. The way you are right now, you can't be my mouthpiece. Wow. So again, we, I think we can see pretty clearly that a prophet of the Lord had become angry with him. But again, we also see that God confronted the prophet about it as he confronted Job, as he confronted Jonah. So he confronted Jeremiah and his bad attitude. And not only does God tell Jeremiah to repent, but he also tells him to take out the precious from the vial, which appears to refer to correcting what he says uh, in order to be a fit mouthpiece for God. Then he says, you shall be my mouth. He's basically saying, Jeremiah, stop and listen to yourself. The very people you're complaining about being separated from are the people you're acting like. You're supposed to get them to repent and be more like you, not you becoming more like them. You can do that again. You can be my mouthpiece again, but you've got to repent first. <laughs> you've got to set the example of repentance that you're not setting at the moment. That's what's going on here. Now, if you read the whole story of Jeremiah, you can see how he would stumble into a sin like this. Just like if you read everything about, if you really understood the Assyrians, you could kind of understand Jonah's reaction. If you really understood everything that happened to Job, you could kind of get how they'd be tempted to this sin, right? But it's still a sin. It's still a sin. 
this idea of it, him having to repent to be a proper mouthpiece, I think is brought out even better in ESV in verse 19, where it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious, they're saying to take out the precious from the vial, right? And not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. So, in other words, Jeremiah had been starting to act like the, the apostates against whom he had been preaching. And God was calling him instead to be an example of repentance. As the Net Bible notes observe, he is to serve as a model of repentance, not an imitator of their apostasy. In accusing God of being unreliable, he was coming dangerously close to their kind of behavior. Well, I think dangerously close puts it a bit mildly, but uh, in some ways he was actually doing it. At any rate, the context, I think, indicates that what Jeremiah needed to repent of was his anger toward God. That's what it looks like to me. Ang it's anger which led him to complain against God and accusing him of being unreliable, uh, as the apostates have been doing. So, so much for the example of Jeremiah. If it's anger that Jeremiah was feeling here, and it does seem right to say that, so the people that say he's an example of anger, I think they're right about that. What they're wrong about is whether or not it was okay for him to be angry. The immediate response of God is repent. So in each case we've examined, it's clear that those who are angry at God were wrong to be angry at him. And as we've seen, there's no biblical justification for being angry at God. So our beloved pastor, George, is right. <laughs> His response was the right response. Never be angry at God who loves us always. He's not unreliable. We can count on him. That was the right message from someone who knows these passages very well. But what if, what if we ourselves do become angry at God? However wrong it may be, because we do sin when we're not supposed to. What do we do then? Well, we got to talk to God about it for sure. As, by the way, Job did, and Jonah did, and Jeremiah did. They didn't try to hide it from God. I think John Piper again offers some good advice as we move to wrap up here. He writes, But many who say it is right to be angry with God really mean it's right to express anger at God. When they hear me say it is wrong to be angry with God, they think I mean stuff your feelings and be a hypocrite. That's not what I mean. I mean it's always wrong to disapprove of God in any of his judgments. But if we do experience the simple emotion of anger at God, what then? Shall we add the sin of hypocrisy to the sin of anger? No. If we feel it, we should confess it to God. That's not the same thing as venting God and accusing him. Confession is what he's talking about. He knows it anyway. He sees our hearts. If anger... That God is in our heart, we may as well tell him so and then tell him we are sorry and ask him to help us to put it away by faith in his goodness and wisdom. Now, I've often offered essentially the same advice to struggling believers. And I would, I would point out it's never right to pretend with God either. Think about this for a moment. It's a blasphemous thing to be angry at God because it, 
It assumes God can actually sin. But if we think not telling him about it and hiding it will keep him from knowing it, then what are we saying about God? Then we're saying he can't even know what's in my heart. And that's blasphemous too. So the answer to one blasphemy isn't another blasphemy. The right answer is to talk to God about it and say, Lord, I'm struggling with these feelings of anger towards you and I know they're wrong. Forgive me for them and help me to overcome them. And then you know how you overcome them? You go back and look again at the examples of guys like Job and Jonah and Jeremiah. And you see how they overcame them. Because they're there not to show you that it's all right to be angry with God. They're there to show you. God understands that sometimes we get angry at him. He shows us it's a sin, and he shows us the way out through repentance. And remembering his grace, his mercy towards us. So if you are angry at God, you are sinning. But as with any other sin, you can confess it and be forgiven. And through repentance, endeavor to do better. But it's going to require rethinking a lot of things. People who get angry at God don't understand his sovereignty, don't understand his discipline. We need to learn these things again if we don't want to be angry at him or be tempted to be. Let's pray. Holy Father, it's my hope that I've been able to delve into this issue in a way that is, is uh, helpful and constructive and uh, further clarifies uh, points that were made last week in my own message and in the, and in the letter by, by Pastor George. Uh, Lord, help us as we face, I can't think of anyone in this room or anyone in Emmanuel who's sinfully angry at you. I, I don't think that's the the immediate response of anyone in this church. But I know if a righteous man like Job or a prophet like Jonah or a prophet like Jeremiah could be tempted to be angry at you, we'd be fools. We'd be arrogant to think we could never be tempted. We know we could be, and it's only by your grace that we're not. Prevent us, I pray, from such temptation in the future. We're all seems like every family in this church is going through some kind of crisis. And I don't see anger at you in any of them. And that's because of the work of your Holy Spirit, and I thank you for it. Prevent us from being angry people like that, I pray. Help us to follow the example of our Elder George or Pastor George that no matter what you're suffering, you can have joy instead of anger. You can have faith and hope instead of despair because Jesus is still Lord. And he always does what is best for us. That great shepherd of the sheep always does what is best for us. Help us to latch on to that, I pray, and not let go through the power of your spirit. I ask all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention.